0: I pray that you would make disciples of all of us. I pray that especially for Native American men. But the good news is your word is for all of us. So would you all please stand for the reading of God's word so that we can all hear it. 1 Peter five, twelve through 14 morning again, church family. It is a pleasure to uh, be with you this morning. To all you who are uh, new joining us today or who are visiting town, we say welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I pray you experience the grace of Christ. Hey, today is the last Sunday we're going to spend for now in the book of 1 Peter. We've come to the last three verses of the last chapter of this book. And I believe that God has a word that he wants to speak to us about what it means to stand firm in the grace of God. Of all the things that we need to stand firm in today, of all the things that are that we feel like are shaky, that we need to find solace and stability in, the one thing we can find stability in always is the grace of God. Everybody say the grace of God. Why don't you bow your heads with me one more time. Let's pray one more time that God would give us ears to hear what he would have us to hear today. Our Father, I thank you so much that you are a God who treats us so much better than we deserve. You are the God who has given us more than we could have asked for. And there's more still to come. And so we are a grateful people this morning. God, I pray you give us eyes to see more and more clearly the beauty of your grace. And give us ears to hear this morning the truth of your word, that the gospel might be even more beautiful to us at 1230 than it was at 11. Give us your grace to hear and respond to your grace today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our passage today, we see Peter giving his closing remarks on a letter that I'm sure has been challenging to his readers. I'm sure it's probably been challenging to you as well. I know it's been challenging to me. In this letter, Peter has reminded his readers of their true identity, which is counter their lived experience in their communities he has called them up to the heights of salvation and he has called them down to the depths of love and now he is calling them to stand on the grace that motivates and empowers both Peter bookends his letters by referring back to the beginning at the end of May when we first started this book we looked at the first couple of verses in this letter and there we found Peter calling out his audience and pronouncing a benediction upon them. And he called them uh, a phrase that we're going to come back to just for a second today. And that is the, the, the phrase, elect exiles. Everybody say, elect exiles. These people who are reading Peter's letter, hearing it recited, are chosen by God. They are elect But they are, in many ways, rejected by their communities. They are exiles. They are not at home at home. They will be home soon, but right now they are, like Spider-Man, far from home, even at home. Now, this is a similar experience that some folks have when they move to another city, and some of you have done that. Whether for school or for work or for missions, you leave home. You have Numerous experiences that impact how you see yourself, how you see the world, how you see your home. And when you come back home, you find yourselves almost like aliens in your own household. You ever had that experience? Some of you might have that experience even in the same city. You go even to another corner of the city or, or you go on a retreat and, and you meet God whether that's in the face of someone who is vulnerable or whether that's in some experience in solitude and silence, and you come back home and you're not the same. And this is a small depiction of what life is like for these Christians, and I would say for all Christians. And what we can see, sorry, we can see this experience in four words that Peter uses in our text. These four words are at Babylon. Everybody say at Babylon. And everybody say in Christ. Everybody say in Christ. In Christ. You can see at Babylon in verse 13. She who is at Babylon. You see that? If you are in my class, I'd say put your finger on it. At Babylon. Thank you, Greg. When you see Babylon in your Bibles, you need to ask the question, which Babylon? Which Babylon? You see, Babylon was a real city, and it was a real nation that took God's people into captivity. God used Babylon To execute his righteous judgment on his people for their idolatry. Babylon sent God's people into exile. It's an important connection. Babylon and exile. If you read the books of Jeremiah or Daniel, you'll find God's people in exile in Babylon. Everybody say at Babylon. So Babylon was a city, but Babylon in the Bible is also a type of city. It is a type of city. Babylon is used to describe any world power that is hostile to God and to God's people. We find that in the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. Babylon is a type of city that is hostile to God or hostile to God's people. So when God's people are in a Babylon, they are living in exile. This is how Babylon is often used in the New Testament. If you go and read the book of Revelation, you'll see Babylon show up. Babylon. As opposed to the city of God. And this is how Peter uses the word here. The Babylon that he's talking about is likely Rome. Peter's writing from Rome. And he says, she who is at Babylon, the she he's talking about is likely the church in Rome, which is often given a feminine, uh, gender in the Bible. So you have, you have she who is at Rome, the church who is at Rome sends you greetings. The church in Rome sends you greetings. By using Babylon to mean Rome, Peter is saying not just she who is at Babylon since you greetings, Church of Babylon since you greetings, be saying that we in Rome are also in exile. We are participating with you as elect exiles. We are also at Babylon. You feel me? You hear that? We are at Babylon. We're in exile too. And in fact, Christians around the world live in exile. They live in cities that, to some degree, are hostile to the ways of God. And that will be true until Jesus comes back and makes the world right. So Christians live at Babylon. But they also live in Christ. Everyone say in Christ. Look at the last two words of the letter. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. These folks might live in Pontus, they might live in Galatia, they might live in Cappadocia, we might live in Tulsa, we might live in Atlanta, we might live in Moore, we might live in Edmond, we might live in Oklahoma City, but our true home isn't there. Amen? Our true home is in Christ. All who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, the true Lord, the true Kurios, the true Caesar have a new identity that is determined by this new address. It's not a physical address. It's a positional address. Because of sin, all of humanity was hostile to God, the creator. Babylon was in our hearts. You hear that? Babylon was in our hearts because we were hostile to God. But God created us for a relationship with himself. So you got people who are made in the image of God, whose sin have Babylon in their hearts. And yet God has made us for another home, a home where he dwells. So God, in his love, did something awesome. God the Father sent God the Son to put on flesh, to put on our humanity, and to bear all the hostility of humanity upon himself. In Christ, God took upon himself his righteous judgment for our hostility. He suffered at the hands of Babylon. He suffered as an exile from the kingdom of God. The Father turned his face away. But God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. Now, all who trust in the risen risen Christ, for all who trust in the risen Christ, there is a new creation. Which means we get a new heart. God puts Zion, the dwelling place of God, in our hearts. It impacts how we talk, it impacts how we walk, it impacts how we live, how we see other people, how we view our work, how we view our families, how we view our marriages, how we view our vocations, how we view those who are still in Babylon, because Babylon is no longer in my heart. Zion is in my heart. God's dwelling place is in my heart. I abide in a different place now. It impacts everything. That's what Peter's been writing about. We may be at babylon but we are in christ at babylon changes everything now peter gives us a glimpse of how being in christ changes our identity so he changes from the inside out we no longer have babylon in our hearts now some we still have some longings for babylon but god is changing those things right and one day they're going to be fully changed praise the lord amen look forward to that day We have longings for Zion now in our heart that can only come about by the Holy Spirit of God. And he changes our identity. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on this point, but it's really important that those who are in Christ at Babylon need to remember some other things about their identity. And that is two things. One, they are chosen. Everybody say chosen. Chosen. And one, they are family. Everybody say family. Now, Peter's been talking about this throughout the book, and he's kind of bringing it to a culmination here. Look Look back at verse 13. I'm going to try to slow down my speech. I know I speak too fast for some of y'all, but I'm going to try. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. But if you are in Christ, you've got to know and believe that you are chosen. The Bible is clear that a primary identity of Christians is that they have been chosen by God. You can study passages like Romans 8 or Ephesians 1 or 1 Peter 2 which we looked at a few weeks ago. And what you'll find reiterated is, if you are in Christ, God chose you before the foundation of the world. And he intends to conform you to the image of Jesus. Now, what this means for me is that when I feel insecure doing the things that I know God has called me to do, when I feel unsure of whether I can overcome some pattern of sin or some false pattern of thinking, God reminds me both through his word and through some of y'all that he is able, that he is strong enough to finish the good work he has started in me. Because if he has chosen me for himself, he will not leave me alone. He will not leave me by myself If God saw me in my sin, in my destructive ways, with Babylon in my heart, and loved me and made me his own, what will he not do for me? Exiles need to remember that they are chosen. Let me just make a caveat right now. In just a few weeks, we're going to have about a thousand refugees in Oklahoma City. We got some here now already. What does it mean to mean you are chosen? As a church, let's commit, not just with the exiles that are coming from Afghanistan, but with every single person who is isolated from God right now, to look at them in these apartment complexes, neighborhoods, schools, and workplaces, and see them, to choose to see them the same way God chooses to see us in our exile and abandonment. Amen? What if the church of God saw every orphaned kid? And chose to love them like Jesus loves us. What if the church in Oklahoma City decided to to see those immigrants who have left everything. Including the poverty and violence of their home countries to come here. And we look at them and we love them like Jesus has loved us. Paul says welcome one another as, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's what he calls his church to do. And we can do that because we are a chosen people. But exiles also need to remember that they are family. Look at verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him. Look at verse 13. you who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. With each of these men, Silvanus so and Mark, Peter probably has no biological relation. Silvanus, so if you go back and read the book of Acts, traveled with Paul and even co-authored some of the letters with Paul, like 1 Thessalonians. Mark is probably John Mark, who we find traveling a little bit with Paul, and then with Barnabas, and then writing, pinning the gospel of Mark, probably from Rome, probably from the words of Peter. And Peter refers to both of them as family. Venus is a faithful brother, and Mark is, even more enduring, my son. Now, for all those who are in Christ, we are family. Look at your neighbor and say, Jesus makes us family. Now, this is really important for exiles, some of whom have had to leave their families to follow Jesus. Now, personally, I came from a genealogy, a biological genealogy of faith. My middle name is Adam. I'm named after my dad's great uncle, who was a pastor named Adam Joseph. I take that heritage seriously, and I'm grateful for that. But many of you came to Christ, not because your mom or your dad or your grandmother led you to Christ, but somebody you didn't even know who felt called by God to share the gospel with you led you to Jesus. And now you have been sent back into your families as witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's hard. I've walked vicariously and suffered vicariously with some of you in, in, in trying to figure out what it would look like to love my dad, who is not a believer, who doesn't know Jesus, who just treats me as as he was treated as a, as, a, as a son who was neglected by his dad. How do I live? How do I love my family that doesn't know Jesus? And it's important as people who have ex- have that experience. To know that in Christ we have family. Jesus says, and everyone who has left houses or b- brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, think exile. For my name's sake, we'll receive a hundredfold and will inherit an eternal life. Listen, if you've had to leave family to be the first link of Christ in your genealogy, God has not left you alone. He has you a hundredfold of brothers and sisters and mothers and even houses and land, couches and RVs and apartments to sleep in as you identify with Jesus who had nowhere to lay his head. He has not left you alone. This is crucial for exiles in this first century church who are leaving their families to follow Jesus, to be conduits of the gospel back into their genealogies. And it's a promise It's important for exiles to remember that we are family. Everybody say, we are family. So we are chosen and we are family. It's so important for us to get. And Peter is concluding his letter to these exiles who are chosen, who are family. And he summarizes what he wants them to get out of this letter with the words in the second half of verse 12. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring. And that word declaring can mean testifying. I'm a witness with you that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Don't let this letter just sit. I want you to stand firm in the grace that I've been preaching to you. I've been exhorting you to follow. Peter writes to these Christians scattered across the nations and he tells them, what I have written is the true grace of God in which you must stand. If these exiles are to reflect Christ in the Babylons they live in, they must stand firm in grace. In church, if we as exiles are going to reflect Christ in the Babylon that we live in, we must stand firm in grace. Somebody say, stand firm in grace. Now, I want to take the rest of our time to look back at the grace that Peter has written about in this letter. We're going to trace the grace. And there are two graces that... We're going to rehash. The first is the grace of glory. And the second is the grace of submission. So first, the grace of glory. Peter starts his letter. Look at this. Look at this a few months ago by encouraging his readers to stand in the grace of glory. Now, to reiterate this, I'm going to go back into chapter one of first Peter. I'm going to read A somewhat lengthy section from the beginning of this letter. If you have your Bibles or your smart devices, I encourage you to read along. But otherwise, you can just listen. I'm going to try and read with as much intonation as can be helpful as possible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 10 and verse 13. Peter writes this. He starts off right into these exiles and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an important thing to start off with. If you're living and suffering at the hands of Babylon, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed. Why? Check this out. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, we have inherited this. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Let's keep it down to verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a glory of grace. It's for the, the elect exiles in Babylon. Now, in these verses, Peter repeats a couple of times this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what Peter is talking about is he's referring to the time when Jesus comes back in all his glory. And when he comes back in glory, it's going to be a glory like the world has never seen. Jesus is going to be seen to be the Lord of creation. We're going to see him shining like the sun, shining like lightning. He's going to return to make everything right. And there will be a brilliance and a majesty that will make the knees of everyone tremble. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, there will be a glory and a majesty that no one will be able to contradict. Alexander the Great can't contradict it. Hitler can't contradict it. Nothing can contradict the glory of Jesus Christ when he is revealed. And when that happens, Peter says, we will partake in his glory. Theologians refer to that participation in glory as glorification. It's the final aspect of our salvation. When you surrender to Christ, you were justified. You were made righteous before God by faith. You were adopted into the family of God. And the Holy Spirit began a work of sanctification, making you more like Jesus. But that work won't be finished until Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, all of creation will witness the revelation of Jesus Christ but they will also witness what Romans 8, in Romans 8, Paul calls the revelation of the sons of God. All of God's children will be partakers in in Christ's glory. They will take their place in the brilliance and majesty and reign of Jesus. They will reign with him in glory. Listen to how John puts this in 1 John 3, verse 2. He says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be, Has not yet appeared. But we know that when we when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Paul tells us in Corinthians that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another as we just look at Jesus. And one day we're going to see Jesus face to face, which means we're going to be like him, fam. We're going to reflect the image of God. To God. We will participate in and reflect His glory. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory begins to describe this. He says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. And all this is by grace. None of us deserve to take to partake in Christ's glory, but God created us to image himself a work that will only be fulfilled and fully accomplished by God. And through Christ, you will be like him. Now, as exiles who are rejected by the powers that are hostile to God, you need to remember and stand firm in the grace of glory. What does the grace of glory mean for you, family? Like you in particular. Layla, what does it mean for you? Mr. Sam Cuddy, what does it mean for you? Henry, what does it mean for you? Jerome, what does it mean for you? What does it mean that you will stand in the grace of glory? What does this mean for your struggle with sin? What does this mean for your confidence to attempt the good works that God has given you to do? What does this mean for your prayer life? If God has glory in store for you, where are you selling yourself short? I'm not advocating some kind of a self-aggrandizement. But I am advocating a confidence in the truth of God's promise that who we are has not yet been revealed. But God is strong enough to accomplish great works through you. On another note, what does the grace of glory mean for how you treat other people in the body of Christ? What does this mean for people you struggled to get along with? What does this mean for unforgiveness you may be harboring in your heart? You are dealing with the to-be-glorified children of God. Let's tremble in our unforgiveness. Let's love like Christ has loved us. The Holy Spirit is inviting us to stand firm in the grace of glory. But another grace that he's calling us to is the grace of submission. Throughout this letter, we hear this refrain. That refrain is, be subject. We see it in chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We see it in chapter 2, verse 18, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. We see it in 3 verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. We see it in 5 verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, each one of these commands needs nuance in our 21st century context. And I would encourage you, especially if this is the first day to be with us, to go back to those sermons we preached to, to get the nuance. But here is the exhortation that Peter gives to all believers. He says, be subject. Submit yourselves, subordinate yourselves, order yourselves beneath your neighbor. He says. Stand firm in the grace of submission. Now, as I was studying first Peter, chapter two, verses 18 to 25, a couple of years ago. I came across this realization that was powerful to me. That. When Peter says be subject, he is not making a declaration. He's not saying you are subject. He's stating an imperative. He's saying be subject, which has certain implications. When Peter says be subject, what he is saying is in Christ, you are free. In Christ, you have the grace of glory. In Christ, it will be revealed that you are the sons of God by how you emanate and reflect the glory of Christ. That means you are free to order yourself under those who even treat you unjustly. You have a choice. You are a creature with volition. You can will this. And I really appreciate the words of John Howard Yoder and the politics of Jesus when he says, here we have a faith that assigns personal moral responsibility to those who held no legal or moral status in their culture. Remember, Peter is speaking to exiles. Those who everyone else say, you have no rights. You have no position. You have no decision. You have no volition. And Peter is saying, yes, you do. In Christ, you have power. And I want you to use that power to come under those who are over you. If you are a slave, I want you to choose to serve out of your freedom in Christ. If the world sees you as subordinate, I want you to subordinate yourself. Under those who might treat you unjustly. And Peter says, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, what Peter is saying is that there is a grace in submission. that you can choose to love. And this is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? If you are slapped on your right cheek, I want you to turn the other also. If they force you to walk one mile, I want you to walk that mile. But then I want you to choose to love and go ahead and walk the second mile. Because I want you to choose to love. I want you to choose to submit. Don't just submit because you have to. Submit because you can. Because that's what Christ did for us. That's why the grace of submission is always tied in the Christian life To the grace of endurance. Because when we submit to one another, we are communing with Jesus. Who endured suffering for the grace of glory. He counted it joy to suffer because that that suffering was a mark of his love. See, on this side of Jesus' second coming, love will always be cruciform. Because love looks like the cross. To seek the good of my neighbor means I got to give up what I have for the good of somebody else. That's what Isaiah refers to in Isaiah chapter 58 when he says, I want you to share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to clothe him. Not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Our love is a choice. It's going to be costly. But when we suffer like that, when we submit ourselves to one another, there's a grace that comes with it. Peter told us in chapter 5, he said that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There is a grace of submission. Submission. So God has called us to stand firm in the grace of glory, but he also called us to stand firm in the grace of submission. And by that, the world will see that we belong to Jesus. When you stand firm in the grace of submission, because you know the grace of glory, Jesus is revealed to the world. Jesus is revealed to the world. The world sees what God's love is like in Christ, who came to us, left glory to come to us, to put on flesh, to suffer at the hands of Babylon, all for our good. Not because of what he could get, but because of what we could get. And when we follow him in that grace of submission, For the grace of glory that is coming, the world gets to see what Jesus' love is like. So Peter says, stand firm in grace. This is the true grace of God. And when we do that, family, we can know that we'll endure. I was talking with Suparsh this week, and we're reflecting on this idea from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, of what Paul says about us in a very similar context to what Peter's writing. And he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us he says we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. as we always carry in, because of the grace of glory, and Christ will be shown in you. It's good news, family. I want to close with one last point that Peter makes, one last exhortation Peter makes in this letter. He says, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Verse 14. A kiss of love. Now, I don't think he's advocating necessarily for too tender of a family affection. But what Joel Green says when he talks about this this past, he says what, what Peter is advocating here is for an embodied theology. That we have been loved by God. And when we demonstrate that love to one another, Through an embodied affection. A few years ago we talked about when we dap one another. When we kiss one another on the cheek. We exchange hugs and embrace. We are reminding each other of, in a tangible way, what God has called us all to in himself. That in Christ... Even when we suffer, there is a tenderness, an affection that God has for us, that he is not leaving us alone. That when you suffer, when you submit to one another, when you are subjecting yourself, even to those who treat you unjustly, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, regardless of what our circumstances say, that God is working even this out for our good. He is not leaving us alone. Every wound will be an expression of God's love for us when Jesus comes back in his glory. Just like when Thomas saw the nail marks and the spear mark in Jesus' side, he saw it not just as a mark of Roman oppression, he saw it as a mark of the grace of God that in our wounds are the kisses of grace. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to wipe away every single tear from our eyes. And we will see from the position of eternity what every wound was for. We may not be able to explain it today, but we can stand firm knowing that God has surrounded us with his grace. And nothing, nothing can change that. Nothing can take that away. So as a body of Christ, when we greet one another, when we welcome one another, when we greet one another with a kiss of love, we're reminding each other of Jesus' affection for us. He hasn't left you lonely, family. If we can learn one thing from First Peter, as elect exiles, we can know that we are made family, made chosen by his grace, even in Babylon. Amen? Why don't you bow your heads with me, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. I pray for my friends and for myself. Lord, when trouble comes, which it, it comes often, that it won't last always, but that There is grace even in our suffering. There is grace for exiles. There is home to be found in Christ and in the family of God. So I pray for my friends, some who are suffering really deep, difficult things right now, that you would embrace them with a kiss of love. You would show them that you are near to them that Jesus has not left them. Remind them of glory. And God, for those who are not suffering now, maybe who are experiencing ecstatic joy at what you're doing in their lives, may we comfort one another, Lord, with with that joy. Be glorified in our body, and I pray, Lord, you would help us to stand in your grace. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.